0: All right, open your Bibles. Uh, Even though we're studying Job tonight, I want you to start with the Gospel of John, if you would. Turn to John 5 and Luke 24. John 5 and Luke 24. And uh, it will make sense in a few minutes why we're starting there. And then we will go uh, to the book of Job and we'll spend the rest of the evening uh, in Job. We will not get through this lesson tonight. I don't know exactly how far we'll go, but we will um, probably finish it next week. So it'll probably be two weeks on Job. Let me um, go over some preliminary things with you. I put them on the board, but they're also in your notes. Um, Just to kind of give you a little context about um, the Old Testament. This this whole study uh, all year long has been the Old Testament. The first 17 books of the Bible, there are 17 of them. The first 17 are what we call the historical books. And these are the books that begin with Genesis, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, and go all the way through uh, the book of Esther. We just finished that last week. So it's Genesis through Esther. Those are the historical books. So that's one bookend of the Old Testament. You have the historical books. On the other end of the Old Testament, or the other book end, is the prophetic books that we will get to here in a few weeks, beginning with Isaiah. And so you have the major prophets: Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations is written by Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then you have the minor prophets, twelve of them, which would be uh, Hosea through Malachi. So there are seventeen prophetic books: Isaiah through Malachi. So the other book end of the Old Testament is are, are the prophetic books. Sandwiched in between are five little books that we call the poetic books or the books of wisdom. These are Job, uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the song. I like to say the Song of Songs. That's really a better translation. We'll talk about that when we get there. Um, we often refer to it as the Song of Solomon. Uh, but it's really more accurately called the Song of Songs. So we will talk about this. these next, I don't know, four weeks, maybe five weeks. We are going to focus in on the poetic books or the wisdom books, Job through the Song of Songs. So let me give you a little bit. uh, This is just kind of a 30,000-foot view of the poetic books. Uh, I've got it in your notes, but let me give you some characteristics. First of all, uh, the, the poetic books are experiential rather than historical. Um, there's, there's there's, There's no genealogies in the poetic books. There's no passing of time. There's no stories about kings. There's no history in these. These are experiential. They have to do really with the human heart. Secondly, they are concerned, the poetic books are concerned with the individual, not the nation. Think about the historical books they were all the, the, the Pentateuch was about the building of a nation. And then we started getting Kings and, and it was about the growing and developing of the nation. And even when we get to the prophetic books, the prophetic books are about speaking to Israel and Judah, the nation. Uh, But the poetic books are not about the nation. They're about the individual. They're about us. They're about humanity. Uh, thirdly, um, the, and this really goes hand-in-hand hand with the second one. The poetic books are about the human heart, not the Hebrew race. It's, it's not about the development of the people of God corporately. It's about the development of the people of God individually. It's about our human hearts. And then, fourthly, uh, when we talk about poetic, um, that refers to the form of, of this writing— all of these books are considered Hebrew poetry, all right? And um, so they deal, they still deal with human experiences. They still still wrestle with some of the really big problems of life, and we will talk about uh, the big one tonight. They express the big realities, and, and they especially talk about the experience of our lives, a godly person, in a world that's constantly changing. Uh, one of the phrases that you will see in the book of Ecclesiastes is, under the sun. You will hear Solomon say, me meaningless, meaningless, or vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity under the sun. Um, and he's talking about the life we live. Let, let me give a little news flash to all of us tonight. Our lives, 24-7, are lived under the sun. This is where we live. We go to work, we struggle with individuals, we have frustrating moments, we have wrong desires. We have all of those things. We are dealing with life under the sun. And um, and so these poetic books, even though they grapple with big issues, they grapple with them in our lives under the sun. I, I mean, Proverbs even talks about when you have to loan somebody money, be careful that you're not a cosigner. It, it talks about, you know, not busting into somebody's house who's not a morning person early in the morning and screaming real loud and think that they're still going to be your friend, okay? I mean, that's what Proverbs says. It talks about stuff that that we do under the sun. It's just everyday life. That's what we find in these poetic books. Now, the time frame of these books is kind of this bottom piece that I put on here. It's also in your notes. But there are three major time frames that that the poetic books take up. The first one is what we call the patriarchal period. Uh, somebody tell me who the patriarchs were or any of them. Anybody know patriarchs? Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and Joseph. Really the book of Genesis is about the patriarchs. Okay. So the book of Job, not everybody knows this, but the book of Job is a story that comes from the patriarchal period, all right? Many people believe that the book of Job is actually the oldest book in the Bible. Now, I'll talk about a little bit more why, but there's some language, some of the words that are used in the Hebrew, it's very clear, came from patriarchal days. Some of the uh, iron instruments that are used um, in the book of Job, we're talked about, clearly come from the patriarchal days. But the big giveaway, and I'll say this again later, is that Job is the priest of his family. He is making burnt offerings. He is making sacrifices. That did not happen once there were priests in place. And so it had to, it had to predate that. So the, the patriarchal period would be around 2000 B.C., the second, and that's the book of Job. The second period would be the Davidic period. That would be the time that David ruled on the throne. Uh, that's around 1000 BC. And generally speaking, I'm painting with a very broad stroke here, but generally speaking, Psalms came out of that period. Now, not all of the Psalms. The 90th Psalm was written by Moses. So that was way before David. Um, but generally speaking, and because David wrote many of the Psalms, I think, 72 of them or something like that um we consider the psalms coming out of the davidic period and then the third period is the solomonic period that would be the period that solomon ruled on the throne it would be just those years right after david and that's the period that that generally speaking proverbs ecclesiastes and the song of songs came from so that kind of gives you the time frame a little bit about the kinds of of hebrew poetry don't want to bore you with this so i'm trying to hurry but um there was what is called lyric uh, poetry. Uh, these would be poems that, that generally or originally were accompanied by a musical instrument like the lyre. The psalms were all—they were, they were songs. They were to be played and sung. So that was a form of poetry. Hebrew poet, poetry, known as lyric uh, or lyric, um, would, be, would be poetry that was written to music then there was didactic um, Hebrew poetry. These would be um, little maxims um, like um, like better to have a lot or have a little just a morsel of bread with people that get along than a feast with a bunch of people that are arguing. okay, that's a paraphrase of the that's a that's a little maxim. That's called didactic. Poetry, little short, pithy statements we 'll talk about some of them, some of them are pretty funny in the book of Proverbs. Um, those would be didactic poetry as well, and these, these little pithy proverbs are used to communicate basic life principles. You will basically find um, didactic poetry in proverbs and ecclesiastes and then the, the third is is drama or dramatic poetry. And that's just narrative, it's story, it's dialogue. Um, that was a form of Hebrew poetry. The book of Job, it's a story, would be considered uh, dramatic poetry. The Song of, Sol- or Song of Songs would also be considered that as well. So it's dialogue that's communicating a message. Now, let me give you this neat little outline. It's in, it's in your notes, but I like this because it, it, it kind of helps us just very quickly sink our teeth into these five books. Job teaches us how to suffer. I'm sure you all all want to know how to suffer, right? So so Job teaches us how to suffer. Uh, Psalms teaches us how to pray. Proverbs teaches us how to act. Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes teaches us how to enjoy. And the Song of Songs teaches us how to love. So it's kind of a, again, broad stroke, but at least gives us some sense of these books. Now, um, look at john five thirty nine i want to I want to kind of go a different direction and before I read these scriptures, there are those today that suggest that we should that new testament christians twenty first century Christians do not need to bother themselves with the old Testament that it is unnecessary it 's out of date it 's irrelevant um, one of the probably most popular Individuals who's done that, although he has uh, backed it up a little bit, and that was a wise move, would have been Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley's a great teacher, uh, very charismatic, has a great personality. Um, He wrote a book that got him in some trouble in in evangelical circles, and basically said he was misunderstood and, and not judging his heart, but he was interpreted to say we just need to leave the Old Testament alone and only preach the New Testament now. That is, that's problematic. And one of the reasons is, John 5, 39, look at this, this is the words of Jesus. These are the words of Jesus. He says, search the scriptures. Word scriptures always in the Greek is graphe, and it always refers to the Old Testament. There was no, when Jesus said that, there was no New Testament. Search the scriptures, the graphe. For in them you think you have eternal life. These are they, the Old Testament scriptures, that testify of me. Jesus said, search the scriptures because they talk about me. So if the Old Testament talks about Jesus, it's not irrelevant. We should not leave it alone. Look in Luke chapter 24. This is um, resurrection day. Jesus has resurrected. He is walking on the road to Emmaus. He comes up to two disciples of Jesus that don't recognize him. Um, They're still bemoaning the fact that the one that they had thought was going to be their Messiah was dead. And there's this rumor that he's resurrected. They don't, their eyes aren't open to it being Jesus. And in verse 27 of Luke 24, the Bible says, and beginning at Moses, what would Moses be? It would be the first five books of the Bible. He wrote them beginning at Moses And all of the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all of the graphe, all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. All of the scriptures. He, he took them, he took them, it was an Old Testament survey class. He did a lot faster than we've done it. He did it in one walk on Resurrection Day, and we've taken months to do it. But he took them through the Old Testament and showed them the scriptures concerning himself. Then if you will go down to verse 44 of Luke 24, then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, and the prophets, look at this, and the Psalms concerning me. So Jesus said, the Old Testament talks about me. And so, again, my point is, even in these poetic books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, they have something to say to us today because in some way, they point us to Jesus. Now, let me, let me just pause for a moment and say... Um, When Peter writes in the New Testament, he makes it clear that the Old Testament writers didn't fully understand who they were talking about. They were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they knew that it was for a time that was coming down the road, but they did not fully grasp who it was. In other words, Moses didn't know that Jesus was going to come as a baby in Bethlehem. He didn't have that revelation. We're going to look at Job. Job did not understand that there was a Christ that was coming that would look like Jesus and be crucified on a cross. They did not have full revelation. But what they did have, and we'll talk about it more, please get this, what they did have was a desire for a relationship with God that they couldn't have because they were sinful and they needed somebody to go in between them. And so there was a desire for that person. They, they were longing And the Old Testament is trying to point them to the Jesus that was to come. I put this quote in your notes. Norman Geisler says, whereas the foundation laid for Christ is in the law, and the preparation for Christ is in the books of history, the books of poetry, which we're looking at, reveal the aspiration for Christ. They're aspiring to him in the hearts of the people. They aspired to a life fulfilled in Christ in both an explicit and implicit way, both consciously and unconsciously. Let, let me make this real simple. In other words, David, when he wrote the Psalms, did not know everything about Jesus that we know about Jesus. He didn't even know his name would be Jesus. But David woke up every morning longing to be close to God and knowing that it was going to take something else, knowing that it was going to take someone to stand between him and a holy God. Every time the priest would, on the day of atonement, make atonement for the sins, the people knew there was a day coming when they were going to be able to get closer to God. They were aspiring to that. And we'll hear in Job's writings, or not his writings, but in his story, his words There was a longing, an aspiration for Christ. So, that said, let me say a couple of other things, and then we're going to get right to the book of Job. Um, Job and Psalms, um, let me erase this just to draw this. It's not real profound, but let me show you anyway. Um, I want you to kind of see the directions that these books take. Job and Psalms really are vertical in their focus. In other words, uh, I, let me see how I wrote it here. Um, it is humanity's appeal to God for assistance and wisdom. Job is Job is talking to God, and and uh, he talked a little too much to God, and he kind of gets rebuked at the end. The Psalms are. The psalmists are always talking to God. They're praying. So Job and Psalms are kind of upward um, in in their direction. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs are God's appeal to humanity for wise and righteous living. So Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs are really downward. God is calling people to a life of righteousness. And so there's kind of these five books, two of them kind of are upward moving and three of them are the other direction. Now, let me get to the real uh, punchline of our study tonight. This is the subject matter. And I want you to learn this tonight. This is really pretty important. Um, This is our subject matter tonight. The book of Job, and it will be next week as well, addresses the issue or the debate of the problem of suffering. That word is theodicy. I'll talk about it in a minute. Um, How many have ever tried to witness to somebody and had them say, I have a hard time believing in a God or the God of love? When really bad things happen to really good people, anybody ever had anybody say that? Anybody, you don't have to raise your hand. Anybody ever thought it or said it yourself? I mean, if we're all honest, we struggle with that. How in the world can really bad things happen to really good people who have served God all their life? I mean, that's that's a question that's that's a question that's always been asked. Um, this word in the Greek is theo. Theo is Theos is the word for God in the Greek, and this comes from the Greek word uh, decay, Um, and it means um, trial or judgment. So this is the word that theologians use when they talk about the question of suffering. Why? Does a good, holy, righteous God allow good people to suffer? Why do planes crash? Why are babies born deformed? Why does the mother carry a baby for nine months and it's stillborn? Um, Why does a 22-year-old with a child or a 27-year-old with three children die of cancer? Those are the kinds of questions that, that we ask, and we all ask them. Humanity asks them. It's the question of suffering. And, um, it's called a theodicy. Um, and that's really, that's really at the core of the book of Job. Now, before we go there, I want to back up for just a second and talk about this whole Christ in the book of Job thing. Is Christ seen in the book of Job? And, And my argument is that there is an aspiration or an anticipation of Christ, even though not a full revelation. Um, And when we get to the end of this lesson, it'll be next week, probably. The end of this lesson, I'll talk about this very thing. This will be where we land, but I also want to use it in the introduction. Um, It's unusual to quote yourself, but I am quoting myself here in these notes. In the the book that I wrote for a class for poetic books, I, I wrote this. It would be misleading to suggest that Job had an awareness of the coming of Christ and that his words were somehow prophetic, wasn't prophesying. It is more accurate to say that Job reflects the anticipation of every human, one that stirs an innate hunger for a relationship with God and one that finds its final and full revelation in the person of Jesus Christ, not unveiled until the opening chapters of the New Testament. In other words, what Job was longing for wasn't prophetic and he wasn't seeing it, it was just what every human heart felt. I need somebody. Um, he will. In one place, we'll talk about it next week. He says, "Oh, that there would be someone to stand between me and God." That's anticipation. So that's that's what that's how Christ is revealed. Not not because Job says, "Let me tell you about Jesus that's to come." That doesn't happen. But we see an, an, an anticipatory heart in the book of Job. Now, the book of Job um, has been long praised even by ungodly people as a masterpiece of literature. Um, Victor Hugo, an atheist who wrote The Hunchback of Notre Dame, said, tomorrow, if all literature was to be destroyed and it was left to me to retain one work only, I would save the book of Job. Um, Lord, Lord Alfred Tennyson said, the greatest poem Speaking of Job, whether of ancient or modern literature, and Daniel Webster said, the book of Job, taken as a mere work of literary genius, is one of the most wonderful productions of any age or any language. What is it about the book that prompts such praise? Especially a book that a lot of Christians, I don't even want to read it because it's depressing and I don't understand it. Um, What is it about that book? And we're going to dig in over the next... um, week and a half. Now, let me just give you a few more uh, introductory remarks, and then we're going to deal with some lessons. Who is the author? Um, We're not sure. Jewish tradition said it was Moses, uh, but there's a whole lot of other suggestions. Some people think Job wrote it. Um, Some think Elihu, which was one of the characters in the book of Job. Uh, Some people think Solomon wrote it. Some Isaiah, Hezekiah, Baruch, which was the scribe of Jeremiah. Um, what we do know with absolute certainty, it was a Hebrew, a loyal Hebrew, who did not believe the, um, the uh, underlying theology of the day. The underlying theology of the day was that um, if you were bad off or if you were suffering, it was because of sin. Always, that was that that time frame. You just it, it, you just believed it. If if somebody's sick, it's because always they sin. Whoever wrote the book of Job clearly did not believe that, and we will unpack that a little bit further. Um, the book of Job is often misunderstood and misused, but as I mentioned, evidence does point to a patriarchal author. There is no mention of the law. And um, I've already mentioned that Job served as the family priest, which would make it predate the priest. And again, one more time, it deals with the ever-present issue of human suffering, and teaches humanity how to suffer. But here's the here's the why a lot of people don't like to read it. But it never really answers the question why. And I am guessing that if we're all honest, we would like to have that question answered: Why? Did this happen? Why'd that happen? Um, And Job will leave you disappointed if that's what you're looking for. There's just a lot deeper truth than why. And I hope that you'll see that over the next couple of weeks. So let's jump in. Um, I'm going to begin with seven kind of overarching lessons from the book of Job. And uh, later I'll give you 10 that they're a little more probing. All right? These are just kind of high-flying lessons from the book of Job. Number one, uh, the book of Job defends the absolute glory and perfection of God. As a matter of fact, at the end of the book, Job is going to be silenced by God. Job's going to talk for a long time. He's going to even complain a little bit. And finally, I'm going to paraphrase, but finally, God is going to say, Job, enough. You stand there. You be quiet and I'm going to talk. And what will happen is God will defend his own character and his own glory. And he will do such a masterful job that when he is done, Job will say, I am really sorry I ever said anything. I will not ask you a question again. All right. That's a huge paraphrase. But God, the book of Job defends the absolute glory and perfection of God Um, ultimately. Number two, the issue of suffering is certainly addressed, but the answers that emerge, though not what Job wanted, are crucial to understand. We'll learn some of those lessons. Number three, um, this is maybe one of the most important things I will say all night. We cannot always subject our painful circumstances to meaningful analysis and tie up all the loose ends. Sometimes we just have to trust God without answers. We all, we all want to tie up all that. We want to know why this, this. Now it makes sense. And that's really what Job will say. Job is basically saying, God, I'm okay with you doing what you're doing if you'll just tell me why so I can understand. How many would like to understand everything God does in your life all the time, right? And that's the struggle we have. But but Job is going to teach us sometimes we just aren't going to get everything perfectly analyzed and figure it all out. Number four, Job teaches us that suffering is not always the result of personal sin. Let me make a little pause there. All suffering is a result of sin initially. All right, so that's why I use the word personal. We are in a fallen world because Adam and Eve sinned. So you can make the case and you can argue with me, well, it is because of sin. Yes, it is. It's because of Adam and Eve's sin. But your suffering and my suffering is not necessarily correlated to my sin or your sin. All right, it's not always the result of personal sin despite the accusation and the testimony of Job's friends. Job's friends aren't going to say, oh, yes, it is, Job. You must really be a rascal. That's why you're going through what you're going through. Number five, suffering may be allowed as a complement to our spiritual development. Doesn't that give you the warm fuzzies, right? God will allow suffering to complement our spiritual development. Now, the New Testament says that. Don't think. It's strange, the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. But count it as joy because it tries your faith, which is more precious than gold. All right. So that's what the Bible, the New Testament says it. God uses suffering to complement our spiritual development. God allowed suffering to prove to Satan what kind of man Job was. Number six, there is a beautiful portrait of patience that is painted. Really interesting word in the Greek uh, for patience is hupomone. Um and it means endurance under the weight of struggle or pain or sorrow. It, it, it's we think of patience as I'll just wait. No, patience is Hebrews twelve says, "Let us run with patience." Okay, we think patience is standing still. That's not what the writer of Hebrews said. Let us run with hupomoni, run with endurance, even though we're being weighted down with trial and difficulty. So there's this beautiful portrait of patience that's painted here. Patience isn't case sera, sera, whatever it will be. I'll just sit here and see what God does. Patience is moving forward in, but enduring the trial. And there's this beautiful portrait of patience that is seen in Job. And finally, it prepares the way for Christ. There's great anticipation that's seen. Job chapter 1. Let's start into the story, and it begins with the prosperity and the piety of Job. Verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Job, not Job. Job. Um, uh, And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Seven sons, three daughters were born to him. His possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, a very large household household. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would... Look at this. That Job would send and sanctify them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did regularly. That's a part of Job we often skip over. Do you see how devout and pious he was? He he um, preemptively offered sacrifices for his family in case they had sinned. He was he wanted to sanct- he wanted to protect them. What a, what a good father! He's praying for them. He's offering sacrifices for them. He's covering his children. That's and he's prosperous and he's spiritually pious. This is a good man, this man, Job. As a matter of fact, he was so good that God had great thoughts of him. Look at verse 6. There was a day when the sons of God, uh, just simply means angelic beings, and we know that Satan used to be an angel, um, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Now, let me say something here. What What a privilege to be the guy that God chooses to say to Satan, look at this guy. Now, that's the good side. (laughs) What a bummer to be the guy that God chose because he got whacked upside the head after that because, you know, Satan started accusing him. But the point is, Job was a very pious, godly man, and God had high thoughts of him. So Satan challenged him. In verse 9, Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? You put a hedge around him. He's on easy street, uh, around his household, around all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So Satan... um, said, God, I, I know he's a good man, but he's a good man because he didn't have any problems. He's never had a tough day in his life. You've protected him and you've prospered him. That's the reason he's serving you. You, you take that away from him and he's not going to serve you any longer. And God said, um, you can touch, you can take anything he has. Just don't touch his person. And so he did that. Verse 13. There was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job and said the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away, indeed, they've killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I'm the only one escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another one came and said the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I'm the only one escaped to tell you. Verse 17, while he's still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans had three bands, they raided camels, took them away, and they killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, so the fourth servant comes and says, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they're dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So in one day, he loses everything. Servants, cattle, children, family, and uh, look at his response. Verse twenty: Job arose and he tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and he and he worshipped. Just reflect on that a minute. Worst day of his life, and he worshipped. Um, we can't worship if we don't like the song in church, you know. And, and he seriously, and he loses everything, and he worships. Um, and he said, naked, I came from my mother's womb. Look at his perspective. I didn't start with anything, and naked, I'll return. I'm not going to end with anything. The Lord gave, and the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, he did not sin nor charge God with wrong. It's really interesting. I put this little note here. Job neither assumes God is punishing him, or, nor does he become bitter. He worships. He didn't say, I'm being punished. This is God's prerogative. I didn't bring anything in. I'm not going to take anything out. I'm going to worship. Job can remain faithful under adversity because, look, he accurately understands prosperity. He knows what he doesn't know. What what does he not know? Namely, why God blesses us with prosperity or allows us to suffer with adversity. He knows he doesn't know why. So at the beginning of the story, he doesn't even question. He just worships. And he also knows what he does know, that is God is faithful, even when we're going through the trial. Job, therefore, stands as a rebuke to both the prosperity gospel and the poverty gospel. Prosperity gospel that says you're more spiritual if you're prosperous, and the poverty gospel that says you're more spiritual if you don't have anything. Job says that's irrelevant. Naked I came to this world, naked I'm going to leave. I had a bunch in the middle, and God can give and take away. It's not up to me. And so Job has a really good understanding of, at least at the uh, initially, of the faithfulness of God. So there's a second challenge that comes from Satan. Uh, verse 4 of chapter 2. Satan said to the Lord, skin for skin, all that man has he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and flesh, and he will surely curse your face. And so God said in verse 6, he's in your hand, just don't take his life. And so in verse 7 Satan went out from the presence, of the Lord, and he struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. So now he's lost everything, and he's a mess. Body boils all over them, horrible pain. Um, and then his wife says to him uh, in verse nine, Are you still going to hold fast your integrity? Notice she notice he has integrity. She doesn't doubt his integrity. She doesn't say it's Job's fault. Are you still going to hold fast to your integrity? Just curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. So she accepts his blamelessness in God's eyes, but she wonders, Job, you've been good. You've had lots of integrity, but what good has it done you? Look at you. You've been a godly man. You've taken care of our kids. You've prayed for them. And look what it's gotten you. Just curse God and die. Um, This is really interesting. I want to make a point here. And I I put this in the notes. Remember I I said to you that, that Job would always go out and sanctify his children and make sacrifices for them and burnt offerings. And he always spent time praying for his family and sacrificing It seems that he was almost obsessed with that. He did it before he he did it and said, well, maybe they sinned. so I'm going to, I'm going to worship God and pray for them and offer burnt offering because maybe they sinned. but here's what Job had done. He had developed a discipline of knowing God and worshiping God and praying to God and experiencing God so that when the trial came, he worshiped. All right. Here's the problem with most Christians today. They don't develop that discipline. They're not in the word. They don't pray. They don't worship. They don't spend time in God's presence. And a trial hits them and it becomes a nine-one-one call to God. Please bail me out. I don't really know you. I really don't know how to pray. None of that for Job. Job had a relationship with God. He just kept doing the same thing. He worshiped. Um, one of the reasons we struggle so much, and, and, and I've pastored now, for 34 years and i have seen um i remember a family specifically in morocco that most unfaithful family until something hit their family and when something hit their family they'd come to church for 14 weeks in a row and they would pastor we're going to start coming and we're going to start tithing we're going to start and then when things kind of settled down they were gone until the next crisis and, and you all have seen people do that. And there's too many Christians that live their lives that way. Job was ready for the crisis because Job had already built a life that knew God. And that is so... Don't, don't wait to the crisis. It'll be too late to really know God in the crisis. You need to know him now uh, before the crisis comes. Then we get to his friends. And this is really where the story gets to be lots of fun. When Job's three friends... Look at verse 11. So when Job's three friends um, heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they each came from their own place. Eliphaz was the Timonite, uh, Bildad was the Shuhite, and Zophar was the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. Verse 12, And when they raised their eyes from afar and they didn't recognize him, when that happened, they lifted their voices and wept. In other words, he was worse than they could have imagined boils consuming his body they saw him and they couldn't even recognize him and they wept and they tore each one tore his robe and they put dust on their head toward heaven and they sat down with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his grief was very great seven days they just sat there with job now i, I don 't mean this to be funny, and i 'm not it 's not original with me, but as we 'll find out in the story, the best advice they gave job was when they weren 't saying anything at all all right that once they started opening their mouths it it went downhill in a hurry. but for a week, they sat there with job and they said nothing so now, what follows and this is going to be the rest of the lesson basically what follows is Uh, A dialogue times three three rounds of dialogue and there are three um, there are three movements in each of the rounds so round one Eliphaz will talk Job will respond Um, and then Bildad would talk and Job will respond and then Zophar will talk and Job will respond end of round one round two starts all over Eliphaz Job Bildad Job Zophar Job round 2 will be over round 3 Eliphaz Job Bildad Job and then Zophar will say I think we've all talked enough and he doesn't talk in the third round at all so he just he uh, gives his yields his time to the congressman from Temanite or whatever I don't know but he doesn't talk the third round all right so he shuts up and then there's another little speech at the end the the Elihu speech and then there's God's speech that's the big one and, and then there's the epilogue. But now let's jump into the story. And, and a couple of lessons, probably all we'll get to tonight, because um, I'll probably linger on this first one a little bit. Number one, this, this may be the most important lesson um, out of the entire book of Job. Because his friends have no reference for theology that doesn't fit their little box, their paradigm. They cannot understand the mystery of suffering, and so they blame Job for committing evil. All right? Um, I'll probably talk about this at the beginning and the end, but it's a problem when we think that our understanding of God is it. That's as far as it goes. And when everything has to fit into our little paradigm and then something happens outside of that, and we try to shove it into our understanding, we get ourselves in trouble. And that's exactly what, especially when it comes to suffering. Let me show you some verses. Look at Job um, Job 4, and look at verse 7. Job 4 and verse 7. This is Eliphaz, and he's talking to Job. Remember now, whoever punished who was innocent... Or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen, Eliphaz says, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they are consumed. Let let me just, just take that first phrase. Eliphaz says, Job, have you ever seen any innocent person perish? Have you ever seen somebody who didn't do something wrong be sick? I I mean, obviously, Job, obviously, everybody knows you've ticked God off. He's angry with you, and he is punishing you. That's the advice. How many don't want a friend like that when you're sick? Okay, that's what Eliphaz said. It's right there in the book. Job, this is is all happening because of you, because that's all he knew. That was his only theology. Somebody's hurting, suffering. It must be because they sinned. Enter Bildad, chapter 8 and verse 20. Chapter 8 and verse 20. Um, Behold, Bildad says to Job, God won't cast away the blameless and he won't uphold evildoers. Okay, so let's just stop there. Sitting there, Boils all over him and he's lost everything. What do you think Bildad is saying? Who is the evildoer? It's Job. Obviously, he's not, you're not blameless, Job, or God would not have cast you away. I hate to tell you this, buddy, I'm your friend, but man, it's obviously something you did wrong. Verse 21, he will yet, uh, actually, we'll just stop at verse 20. Go to chapter 11. And now the third friend, they're all alike. Verse 14, 11, 14, this is uh, Zophar. Um, he says to Job, if iniquity were in your hand, sin was in your hand, and you put it far away, and you wouldn't let wickedness dwell in your tents, then surely you could lift up your face without spot. Yes, you could be steadfast and not fear because you would forget your misery and remember it as waters that had passed away. Uh, Job, if you would get rid of that wickedness in your hand and you would get rid of the sin in your tent, you could lift up your face without spot. You didn't have any more boils. You wouldn't have any more sickness. Job, this is because of you. Okay, That's, that was their paradigm. That was what they thought. This is the theology. You can look back at your notes again. This is what we call divine retribution. That means God pays you back for what you do wrong. How many are glad God doesn't always pay us back for everything we've done wrong? All right. In fact, the Bible says, the psalmist says, thank you because you don't repay us as we deserve. Now, that said... Divine retribution is not without biblical precedent. Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed because of their sin. Sometimes God does. The 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 flood came. Divine retribution. Enough was enough. So I want to be a little bit easy on his three friends. They did there was a precedent for divine retribution. The problem is that's all they knew. That was their paradigm. Always every bit of suffering has to be has to be that somebody sinned. But here's the problem. Often, this is not the case. And our sense of need to provide an answer, right or wrong, forces us to often make wrong assumptions. I um, do not have this down pat yet, but I will tell you better than I used to be. When I started off in ministry, if I got a call to the hospital, emergency room, car accident, or called to a home because somebody just got a terrible diagnosis and it, they were terminally ill, especially as a young pastor, I felt like what they wanted from me was an answer. I felt like I had to say something. You know, you felt like that's what you're, you're the Bible man. You're supposed to, you're supposed to answer this. You're supposed to tell them why this is happening. And um, and you've all felt that way, I'm sure, at some time. Like, you know, you're sitting with somebody in the in in the waiting room maybe when somebody passes and you're sitting there and they're broken and you feel like I need to say something to them or when someone miscarries or when you know there's just all sorts of tragic things that happen and we all feel like we need to have an answer that's what these guys were doing they felt like they deserved, you know they'd been quiet for a week they felt like they needed to say something and we struggle to bear or accept the mystery at the heart of suffering. And oftentimes we offer instead what can be a harmful response. Like we say, well, it must have been God's plan. I didn't help anybody when they're hurting. Or um, it's God's best. Or we get real spiritual and use scripture. Well, all things work together for the good of those who love God. And they just lost somebody. Um, or you know, my favorite, God won't give you more than you can handle. Well, sometimes dog got it, it feels like he does, doesn't it? And and so that doesn't help people. And and so being the answer man is not always what we need to try to do. Um we need to be sometimes present, but not necessarily vocal. Um If any of you have gone through deep suffering, my guess is that your testimony is the most meaningful thing is when somebody sits there with you and feels the pain with you and doesn't offer some cute little answer that doesn't fix it anyway. They just sit there with you or they hold you or they hold your hand or they pray with you and they just ask for God's comfort instead of trying to say, let me tell you why this happened. People don't really need a why; they just need to sense the comfort and, and peace of God. I, I said this this morning; it's not in my notes, and I, I hope I don't offend anyone. But um, I think that the whole hyper faith movement, the um, the name it, claim it, the uh, that that whole movement came as a result of feeling like we need to give an answer to people. And so here's what we do. Um, We give them the answer that if you pray the right prayer and your life gets clean enough and you have enough faith, they will be healed. That becomes very easy for the person saying it because if you don't get your healing, it's not my fault. And we don't want to blame God for sure. So it just is, you evidently didn't get rid of your sin or you didn't pray right or you didn't have enough faith. So it's all on you. The problem with that is, If it's all on you, it's not on God, and you're God instead of God. There's a whole lot of there's a theological mess that happens when you go there. But but I feel like that movement came because there was this need to explain. There was a need to explain why an airplane crashed and killed 200 people. Well, there must have been you know there's no explanation for it. We're in a fallen world, and there's no explanation for it. But I think that movement and the problem is that movement crushes people. That whole hyper faith thing. And I will tell you that having pastored the years that I've pastored, I've become really aggravated that those folks that taught that, that were 700 miles away out west somewhere, teaching it, writing their books, sending their tapes. And my congregation in Winchester was listening to that stuff and they were believing it. And then their spouse or their daughter died that they thought was going to be healed well, they can't get on the phone and call somebody 700 miles away to come help put the family back together. Instead, it's the pastor left there in the small little town trying to say, well, that theology doesn't always work. Sometimes we don't understand God, but we do know God is faithful, God is trustworthy, and God is comforting. Does that make sense at all? So, so the first thing is um, these guys struggled because they didn't have any reference for theology outside of their little paradigm. Um, Number two, and I may stop here. I might give you the third one. Um, Number two, they assume that to experience calamity means that one has abandoned God. Look at uh, chapter 8 and verse 5. Chapter 8 and verse 5. If you would earnestly seek God, Bildad said, and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. The only reason, Job, you're struggling is because you've walked away from God. If you would get that fixed, God would be on your side and he would come through. And then look at um, chapter 22. Chapter 22, this is Eliphaz talking. Eliphaz 22 and 23, 23. 22-23. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. You will remove iniquity far from your tents. What's the assumption, Job? You have abandoned the Almighty. You would return to him, so again what 's going on here is they are assuming that if a person experiences calamity, they must have abandoned god that 's not always the case. It was job had not abandoned God, but and again, we do that to people. we judge people they 're going through that, they must have you know something must have gone wrong in their spiritual life, not always. Um, let me give you number three, and then I, I am going to quit we 'll be done early i don 't want to get too far out ahead of the morning group. They're bigger talkers than you all. The morning group talked a lot this morning and drug it out. So I stopped at two this morning, but I'll go ahead and do one more. But if we get out too far ahead, we'll have to let you out at seven thirty next week, unless you come with lots of things to say. So, um, number three, feeling forced to choose between defending God or blaming Job. And by the way, that's a self-imposed choice. They ramp up their hostility toward God. Let, let me show you. Um, Look at um, chapter 20 and verse 4. This is Zophar. Chapter 20 and verse 4. Do you not know this of old, since man was placed on the earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment? Though his haughtiness mounts up to the heavens and his head reaches to the clouds, yet he will perish forever like his own refuse. Those who have seen him will say, Where is he? will fly away like a dream and not be found. Yes, he will be chased away like a vision in the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place behold him any more. His children will seek the favor of the poor. His hands will restore his wealth. His bones are full of youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Though evil is sweet in his mouth and he hides it under his tongue, though he spares it and does not forsake it, but still keeps it in his mouth. Yet his food is in his stomach, turns sour, becomes cobra venom within him. He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God cast them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The vibrous tongue will slay him. He will not see the streams, the rivers flowing with honey and cream. He will store that for which he labored and will not swallow it down from the proceeds of business. He will not get enjoyment for he has oppressed and forsaken the poor. He has violently seized a house which he did not build because he knows no quietness in his heart. He will not save anything he desires. How would you like to have a friend who said those kind of things to you. In other words, Job, this couldn't be that God did this. So I've got two choices that, and it's, it's self-imposed choice, but he said, I got two choices. Either we put this on God, but a good God couldn't let this happen. That was his mindset, or it has to be your fault. And so when faced with that choice, he just ramps up the rhetoric and he goes after Job and really lays, as a matter of fact, These accusations of Job will get stronger as the book goes on. His friends get more. They attack him even more because they're they're forced to say either God did this or you did something wrong. And it is really hard, even for everyone sitting in this room, even tonight, and for me to say God did that. Right? I mean, that's hard to say. And, And yet, what other choices do you have? Either God did it or it's our fault. All right. And so that's, that's what happens. Let me show you one other place, chapter 22, and I'm going to leave you hanging tonight and maybe even mildly depressed. I hope, I hope it's ramp up your medicine when you get home. All right. But, um, well, it'll get better next week, but there's no other way out of this. So we're just going to, we're going to stop right here after I read you these verses. This is, um, this is Eliphaz again, Faced with the choice of either blaming God or blaming Job, um, he says, Is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without? Now, earlier it was just kind of mild, maybe you've forsaken God. Now, your wickedness is great. And your iniquity is without. And this is a guy that God said, hey, Satan, look at him. He is blameless and upright. And his friend says, because his friend can't figure out why in the world he's sick. So it has to be Job's fault. Your wickedness is great and your iniquity is without end. You have taken pledge. They start making up things. You've taken pledges from your brother for no reason. And you've stripped the naked of their clothing. You have not given the weary water to drink. You have withheld bread from the hungry, but the mighty man possessed the land and the honorable man dwelt in it. You have sent widows away empty and the strength of the fatherless was crushed. Where did he come up with that stuff? I mean, that's Job, the guy that God said is blameless and upright. His friend starts making those kind of accusations. That's what we do when we think that our perspective of God is as far as it goes. When we forget that his ways are not our ways. And as a matter of fact, Isaiah says they are past finding out. That is a really tough place. And not too many people preach it or talk about it anymore. But God really wants us to get, listen, faith, What does Hebrews 11 say? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Here again, let me just, I've already gone there, so let me go there a little further. The the faith movement, the hyper-faith movement, hijacked that scripture. And the evidence of things not seen became the car that I don't have. I don't yet see it, but I'm going to see it by faith or the healing that I don't yet have. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Okay, what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians? Um, he, He says this, Our light and momentary affliction is only for a moment, but is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we look at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. The things which are not seen are eternal. And yet, people made a lot of money taking Hebrews 11.1, the evidence of things not seen. Well, the things not seen. Listen, how many know, no matter how cool the car is, it's temporary? Anybody ever have a car that's eternal? Anybody have one that's eternal? Anybody have a house that has never need any maintenance? The thing, everything we can see is temporary. The things that are eternal that we can't see, the things that we can't see are eternal. Faith is not a focus on the things we see. Faith is a focus on what we don't see. And the place we need to live is saying, you know what? I want healing and I believe God can heal and God does. He just doesn't do it always. Always. I believe God can meet this need and prosper me, Uh, and he does, not always. But my focus is, I'm not going to say if it doesn't come, then there must be something wrong with you or me. I'm going to have faith that says, I know that I'm a stranger here, and I'm a pilgrim here, and I'm only passing through, and I have an eternal place, things I can't see, and I just have to understand that God's ways that are past finding out knows better. And I have to trust him. Uh, That's not a because we are people that want answers. That's not doesn't get lots of amens and sermons. That's why I save it for Wednesday night because nobody amen on Wednesday night anyway. So but 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 my point is that's where God wants us to live. That's real faith. Real faith is believing God for the miracle and trusting him if he doesn't give it. And not going around judging everybody because they're suffering and thinking it's they have something wrong in their life. We'll go further with this next week. Any comments or questions? I may have worn you out. Anybody? You're going to hold true to the night being quiet, right? Okay. God bless you. If you're going to banquet, it's Saturday night. Don't forget that. And Sunday, one service, 10 a.m. If you're able, park in the back. If you're not, and you better get here a little early if you want to see. All right. God bless you.